Chapter Twenty Two of Nurse and Spy in the Union Army by Sarah Emma E. Edmonds. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Twenty Two. About this time, one of those horrible and soul-revolting sights, a military execution, took place. In other words, a soldier was shot in cold blood by his comrades. I did not witness the execution, although it occurred within a short distance of camp and I give the particulars relating to it from the record of the chaplain who attended the unhappy man to the place of execution. Quote, a painful episode, the first of the kind I have witnessed, took place last Friday. It was a military execution. The person thus punished belonged to the 3rd Maryland, which is in our division. On Tuesday last his sentence was formally read to him. He was to be shot to death with musketry on the next Friday, between the hours of noon and four in the afternoon. He had learned the decision on the Sunday before. The day of his execution was wet and gloomy. That morning, in the midst of the provost guard, he was sitting on a bag of grain, leaning against a tree, while a sentry with fixed bayonet stood behind, never turning away from him, save as another took his place. Useless seemed the watch, for arms and feet had been secured, though not painfully, since the sentence was read. The captain of the guard had humanely done all he could, and it was partly by his request that I was there. A chaplain could minister where others would not be allowed. The rain fell silently on him, the hours of his life were numbered, even the minutes. He was to meet death, not in the shock and excitement of battle, not as a martyr for his country, not in disease, but in full health and as a criminal. I have seen many a man die, and have tried to perform the sacred duties of my station. I never had so painful a task as this, because of these circumstances. Willingly, gladly, he conversed, heard, and answered. While such a work is painful, yet it has its bright side, because of the exceeding great and precious promises it is one's privilege to tell. When the time came for removal to the place of execution, he entered an ambulance, the chaplain accompanying him. Next, in another ambulance, was the coffin. Before, behind, and on either side, a guard. Half a mile of this sad journey brought him within a short distance of the spot. Then, leaving the ambulance, he walked to the place selected. The rain had ceased, the sun was shining on the dark lines of the whole division, drawn up in three sides of a hollow square with guard in front and rear he passed with steady step to the open side of the square accompanied by the chaplain there was a grave dug and in front of it was his coffin he sat upon the coffin his feet were reconfined to allow of which he lifted them voluntarily and then his eyes were bandaged in front of him the firing party of two from each regiment were then drawn up half held in reserve during which there was still a little time for words with his chaplain. The general, not McClellan, stood by, and the provost-marshal read the sentence and shook hands with the condemned. Then a prayer was offered, amid uncovered heads and solemn faces. A last handshake with the chaplain, which he had twice requested. A few words from him to the chaplain, a lingering pressure by the hand of the condemned, his lips moving with a prayer sentence which he had been taught, and on which his thoughts had dwelt before, and he was left alone. The word of command was immediately given, 
one volley and he fell over instantly unconscious a record of the wounds were made by the surgeons who immediately examined him the troops filed by his grave and returned by the way they came he left a mother and sister and was twenty years of age soon after i spent a night at harper's ferry john brown is still remembered there and the soldiers go round singing his soul goes marching on that medley of a song does not seem so senseless after all for the spirit of john brown does seem to march along wonderfully fast and our troops are becoming imbued with it to a greater extent than is generally supposed i also visited the courthouse where public service was held by a massachusetts chaplain in the very room where john brown was tried convicted and sentenced there was the spot where he had lain upon his litter there in front of the judge's platform were the jurors seats the chair which the judge had occupied was now tenanted by an abolition preacher oh if old john brown had only lived to see that day but he is gone and his soul goes marching on on the twenty fifth of october the pontoon bridges being completed at harper's ferry and at berlin the army once more advanced into virginia the ninth corps and pleasanton's cavalry occupied lovettsville a pretty little village reminding one of new england the army was now in admirable condition and fine spirits and enjoyed this march exceedingly scarcely a man dropping out of the ranks for any cause whatever but entering into the spirit of the campaign with an energy which surpassed all their former enthusiasm as the army marched rapidly over the country from village to village the advance guard driving the enemy's pickets from one covert to another many thrilling adventures occurred several of which came under my own observation and as i am expected particularly to relate those in which i was personally concerned i will here relate one which came very near being my last on this side of the river on the morning of the third day after we left lovettsville i was sent back to headquarters which was said to be some twelve miles in the rear i was then with the advance guard and when they started forward at daylight i went to the rear in order to go more quickly i left all my traps in an ambulance blankets overcoat and grain excepting enough to feed once then starting at a brisk canter i soon lost sight of the advancing column i rode on mile after mile and passed train after train but could find no one that could tell me where mcclellan's headquarters were on i went in this way until noon and then i found that i was six miles from headquarters after riding a distance which seemed to me all of ten miles i at length found the place sought for i fed my horse attended to the business which i had been sent to transact and then tried to find something in the way of rations for myself but failed utterly not a mouthful could i procure either at the sutler's headquarters cook-house or in any other place i went to two houses and they told me they had not a mouthful in the house cooked or uncooked but of course i believed as much of that story as i pleased the day had been very cold there had been several smart showers during my ride and now it began to snow a sort of sleet which froze as fast as it fell this was an october day in old virginia oh what an afternoon i spent in the saddle on my return hungry wet and shivering with cold i travelled as fast as my horse was able to go until ten o'clock at night with the hope of overtaking the troops i had left in the morning 
but all in vain, for the whole line of march and program for the day had been changed, in consequence of coming in contact with the enemy, and having a sharp skirmish, which resulted in our troops being nearly outflanked and cut off from the main body of the army. Of course I had no opportunity of knowing this that night, so on I went in another direction from that in which the advance guard had gone. By and by I came to some fresh troops just from the north, who had lately enlisted, and been sent down from Washington, and now were on their way to join McClellan's army. They had been put on guard duty for the first time, and that too without any definite orders, their officers having concluded to remain there until the main column came up, and they scarcely knew where they were or what orders to give their men. As I rode up, one of the boys, for if boy he was, not more than sixteen summers had graced his youthful brow, stepped out in the middle of the road with his musket at a trail arms, and there he stood till I came up close to him, and then he did not even say halt, but quietly told me that I could not go any farther in that direction. Why not? Well, he didn't exactly know, but he was put there on guard, and he supposed it was to prevent anyone from going backward or forward. Whether they have the countersign or not? Well, he did not know what it was. I then asked him if the officer of the guard had given him the countersign. Yes, but he did not know whether it was right or not. Well, said I, perhaps I can tell you whether it is correct. I have just come from headquarters. He seemed to think that there could be no harm in telling me if I had been at headquarters, so he told me without any hesitation. Whereupon I proceeded to tell him of the impropriety of doing so, that it was a military offense for which he could be punished severely, and that he had no right to give the countersign to any one, not even the general in command. Then told him how to hold his musket when he challenged any one on his beat, and within how many paces to let them approach him before halting them, etc. The boy received both lecture and instructions in the spirit of meekness, and by the time I had finished a number of the men were standing around me eager to ask questions, and especially if I knew to what portion of the army that particular regiment was to be assigned. After passing along through these green troops I rode on till I came to a little village, which I never learned the name of, and intended to stop there the remainder of the night. But upon learning that a band of guerrillas occupied it, I turned aside, preferring to seek some other place of rest. I travelled till two o'clock in the morning, when my horse began to show signs of giving out. Then I stopped at a farmhouse, but not being able to make any one hear me, I hitched my horse under cover of a woodshed, and taking the blanket from under the saddle, I lay down beside him, the saddle-blanket being my only covering. The storm had ceased, but the night was intensely cold, and the snow was about two or three inches deep. I shall always believe that I would have perished that night had not my faithful horse lain down beside me, and by the heat of his beautiful head, which he laid across my shoulders, a thing which he always did whenever I laid down where he could reach me, kept me from perishing in my wet clothes. It will be remembered that I had started at daylight the previous morning, and had never been out of the saddle, or fed my horse but once since I started, and had not eaten a mouthful myself for twenty-four hours, and had ridden all day and almost all night in the storm. In the morning my feet and hands were so chilled that they were perfectly numb, and I could scarcely stand. 
However, as soon as daylight came, I started again. About a mile from there, I went into a field where the unhusked corn stood in stacks and fed my horse. While employed in this manner, there came along a party of our cavalry looking after that band of guerrillas which I had passed the night before. It was known that they were in the neighborhood, and these men were sent out in search of them. I told them what I knew about it, and intimated that if I were not so hungry, I would go back with them to the village. That objection was soon removed by supplying me with a substantial breakfast from their haversacks. We started for the village and had gone about five miles when we were suddenly surprised and fired upon by the guerrillas. Two of our men were killed on the spot, and my horse received three bullets. He reared and plunged before he fell, and in doing so the saddle girth was broken, and saddle and rider were thrown over his head. I was thrown on the ground violently, which stunned me for a moment, and my horse soon fell beside me, his blood pouring from three wounds. Making a desperate effort to rise, he groaned once, fell back, and throwing his neck across my body, he saturated me from head to foot with his blood. He died in a few minutes. I remained in that position, not daring to rise, for our party had fled and the rebels pursued them. A very few minutes elapsed when the guerrillas returned, and the first thing I saw was one of the men thrusting his saber into one of the dead men beside me. I was lying partially on my face, so I closed my eyes and passed for dead. The rebels evidently thought I was unworthy of their notice, for after searching the bodies of the two dead men, they rode away. But just as I was making up my mind to crawl out from under the dead horse, I heard the tramp of a horse's feet, and lay perfectly still and held my breath. It was one of the same men who had returned. Dismounting, he came up and took hold of my feet, and partially drew me from under the horse's head, and then examined my pockets. Fortunately, I had no official documents with me, and very little money, not more than five dollars. After transferring the contents of my pockets to his own, he remounted his horse and rode away, without ever suspecting that the object before him was playing possum. Not long after the departure of the guerrillas, our party returned with reinforcements and pursued the rebel band. One of the men returned to camp with me, letting me ride his horse, and walked all the way himself. The guerrillas were captured that day, and, after searching them, my pocketbook was found upon one of them, and was returned to me with its contents undisturbed. It lies before me while I write, reminding me of that narrow escape, and of the mercy of God in sparing my unprofitable life. A sovereign protector I have, unseen yet forever at hand, unchangeably faithful to save, almighty to rule and command. After returning to camp, I found that I had sustained more injury by my fall from the horse than I had realized at the time, but a broken limb would have been borne cheerfully if I could only have had my pet horse again. That evening we held our weekly prayer meeting, notwithstanding we were on a march. Chaplain and Mrs. B., Nellie, and Dr. E. were present, and joined heartily in singing the following hymn. And are we yet alive, and see each other's face? Glory and praise to Jesus give, for his redeeming grace. Preserved by power divine, to full salvation here, again in Jesus' praise we join, and in his sight appear. What troubles we have seen! 
what conflicts have we passed fightings without and fears within since we assembled last but out of all the lord hath brought us by his love and still he doth his help afford and hides our life above end of chapter twenty two